Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. Eat food, mostly plants, not too much. That's a quote from my guest today, writer Michael Pollan. Pollan is the author of seven books, including Food Rules, An Eater's Manual, The Omnivore's Dilemma, and In Defense of Food. But don't call him an obsessive foodie. He's more comfortable with the classification of nature geek. Whatever you call him, Pollan reshaped our relationship to what's on our dinner plate. You might think Michael Pollan was a young kid scheming how to get broccoli into his lunchroom. But the food activist in him developed later. The love of writing came first. I had this idea I was going to be a college professor and teach English. And then I got there and I did a year of it. And it was really great. I mean, I had a great experience. Um, But then I was getting to the hard part. I had to learn German and read The Fairy Queen and all the stuff I didn't want to do. And I had this wonderful journalism job this summer after my master's. So I decided I could write the kind of stuff I wanted to write as a journalist rather than as an academic. And you you worked as a journalist where? Oh, I had a succession of jobs. I worked for a bunch of failed startups, magazines you never heard of. Yeah, Harper's the only one that survived. But at a certain point, I had to make a judgment. Was I going to be a writer or an editor? And And I had written my first book, which is called Second Nature, while I was moonlighting. At Harper's, I was doing it evenings and weekends. But then I had a kid, and you lose your uh, your ability to use your weekends and nights that way. So at that point, I was at this fork in the road. Was I an editor or a writer? Decided I wanted. I already had contracted for my second book. I was way behind on it. I, I would have owed a lot of money to stop it. So we decided let's leave town, live as cheaply as we could in rural Connecticut, and um, and I would just do be a writer and. Uh, um, and so describe that, your first two books, which are not food-related? Not they exactly, are. no. They're, they're nature-related. All the work is really about nature. I mean, I think my, my meta-subject is our engagement with the natural world. So my first—but I, I didn't know that when I started off. My first book was about gardening. Um, in graduate school, I had studied Emerson and Thoreau, and I was very—I I was completely invested in these American—these beautiful American ideas about nature as divine, and, you know, God's second book was the landscape, and the wilderness was this very special place, and I love those ideas and love those writers. But when you start to garden, those ideas are a disaster um, because they preach— um, just kind of everybody gets along, you know, you don't, don't worry about the squirrels or the woodchucks. And um, so I planted a garden based on those ideas, and it had no fence. And uh, because fence— And the for, violence of nature grated here. Yeah. And I was challenged. I was challenged by woodchucks. And I got into a, uh, a war with one woodchuck in particular— that I'm not very proud of uh, how I conducted. Um, and this this woodchuck, I would plant the garden one weekend. He would come along and mow it down the next weekend. I would do it again. And um, I realized that all the, the kind of intellectual armaments I had were not adequate to dealing with this problem. And I started doing some things that I'm really uh, not proud of. So, for example, um, I, I read up on the woodchuck. That was my normal approach. And I saw, okay, he's going to have a burrow, and the burrow is going to have all these different rooms. And, and they love – they're really clean freaks, 
Woodchucks, you wouldn't know it. They look kind of sloppy, but they're clean freaks. So the first thing I did was I poured some like creosote and, and molasses down his hole. I found the burrow thinking he would be grossed out and would move on. He wasn't. Um, I, he came back. He just made a new burrow and went around it. And then I stuffed it with rocks and soil thinking I would you know, suffocate him. But they always have a back door. And I finally um, – Condom- well, con- condominium developers should hire you to clear out their <laughs> rent-controlled apartments. You're like a New York landlord. Here, yeah, right? or Donald Trump. I can right. get rid of those old ladies and standing in the That's way right. of his parking lot. Um, and, uh, so they burrowed to the other side. Or yeah, and then I got this idea. I was driving along the road, and I saw some roadkill, a dead woodchuck, flattened. And I actually, like, scooped it onto a piece of uh, cardboard, drove it home, stuffed it in the hole, thinking I would intimidate him, basically. Didn't work. Uh, so ultimately, I was reduced to doing something that I, I am a little bit ashamed of as someone who's thought of as an environmental writer. I, uh, I poured a gallon of gasoline down his, um, down his burrow, thinking that it would fan out through all the little rooms, the latrine room, the food room, the kitchen. And I threw a match in there. And, um, uh, and in, my, in my mind, the fire was going to like go way down the you know, I'd seen this image. You create a flamethrower, essentially. Yeah, basically. Well, actually, it was modeled on. There was a, a news item about a new fuel they developed for jet airliners that would be slower to combust. And they set up an old 707 on an airfield somewhere, and they put a camera in it, and they lit a fire and to see if this would give people time to get out of the plane. It didn't work at all. And, and you just saw this image of the fire just shooting down the fuselage, and that was exactly what I wanted to happen. But as, uh, as you know, I'm an English major, not a physics major. And a physics major would have known that fire is never going to go away from oxygen. <laughs> it's always going to go toward oxygen. Right. So the fire came the wrong way. And there was this torrent of flame that just kind of threw me back and shocked me into an awareness that this is probably not the best way to deal with the natural world. And you could literally hear the woodchuck laughing inside the burrow. It was. They had a lot of Caddyshack in the scene. It really was. It was, it was embarrassing. Um, but it was, it was at that moment. What did moment, you learn from that? Well, what I learned is that— I can't believe I get to ask you that question. What did you learn, Michael Pollan, from these misadventures with the woodchuck? I learned that Emerson and Thoreau really didn't have— uh, very good guidance to us on doing things like farming, like gardening, like engaging with nature when we have no choice but to intervene. They were very good for locking to deal up with them on their the terms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that you need another ethic in order to figure out how to deal with. Look, as Americans, we've been very good at creating wilderness. We invented the wilderness and we locked up and threw away the key to about 8% of the American landmass. Really impressive accomplishment. Probably our greatest contribution to world culture is the wilderness park. The rest of the world is like, wilderness? Ugh. You know, it was considered ugly in Europe and, and uh, you know, the warts of nature, you know. They, I mean, they, they hated it. Um, but we didn't have an ethic for dealing with the other 92%, which is why we made such a mess of it. Um, the wilderness ethic is silent about agriculture. It's silent about cities. It's silent about suburbs. And so I realized that I needed to look for a new way to think about nature in these places I was drawn to, like gardens and farms. And, and so I began uh, that, that journey that I'm still on. And your next book was what? My next book was about architecture. It was about building. I built a building on my property. It was called A Place of My Own. It was a complete bomb um, uh, because— for, The building was a bomb or the book was no, a bomb? The, Building's fantastic. The book was a bomb. <laughs> it just, uh, I, I made a few mistakes with the book. But it, too, was about nature, I, I realized. And it's in your second book that you really figure out what you're about as a writer. I, and I think all writers have a set of kind of final questions that if you scratch 
deep enough, you will see that everything Michael Lewis writes is about success. You know, whether he's writing about sports or Wall Street, that's fundamentally the question that he's interested in. And, and, and you can go through any number of writers and find what that question is. Is it about money? Is it about love? And I realized writing the book about architecture, which I thought was a departure from nature, um, what I was drawn to was the nature issues in architecture. So, for example, does nature tell us how to build in any way? Does it have any useful information? Or is it a pure confection of culture? Did you conclude that it did have a— Yeah. And, and at the time, architecture was going down this incredibly theoretical path where it was all language. This is the moment of Peter Eisenman and Robert Venturi and, and deconstruction. And it was completely out there. And there were no rules. You could do whatever you wanted. But in fact, there are rules. I mean, they're based on our bodies, what makes our bodies feel good in a certain kind of space, um, not to mention the nature of materials and trees. And, and uh, so I kind of like realized, oh, I guess that's my topic. Is that what you learned from writing the book was to get to well, what, you, there was a, what you ought to be writing about? Yeah. And I went back to plants in the next book. I wrote a book called The Botany Desire, which was um, kind of a deep dive into our relationship with four domesticated species, um, each of which got ahead in life by gratifying human desires. So there's an apple, which gratifies our desire for sweetness, profound desire. There's um, tulips, gratifies our desire for beauty. Cannabis gratifies our desire to change our consciousness. You, now, your next book is, is it about drugs? It's about psychedelic experience. Okay, okay. Yeah, we're, we're, gonna, yeah. we're getting back to that. Okay. So, so botany of desire, you talked about cannabis. Yeah, and that was my, that's where I started looking at that really interesting question is why as a species do we want to change our consciousness? I mean, it's not adaptive, right? It puts you at all sorts of risk. But we have this desire. And in fact, many animals have it too, which is kind of a mystery. Which, uh, which animals have a desire to? Elephants love to get drunk. And you can imagine how much it takes. Um, uh, how do they get drunk? Well, they'll, they'll— Accidentally or— No, there's a few ways. I mean, in nature, when fruit rots, it ferments. Right. And so if you find a split coconut and it just sits there for a while, it's got alcohol in it. And they'll, they love that. But in God. India, there are, there are also all these wonderful reports of them. Um, someone will have a still or, you know, and they'll just knock it over and take whatever and alcohol it. they can get. Yeah. And there are many animals—and I don't know if you have cats, but if you've ever given— I mean, it was my cat's problem with catnip, actually, that— sensitized me to this. I had a cat that, and I grew catnip for him, and he came down to the uh, garden every evening when I was, this is in Connecticut, when I was harvesting something for dinner. And what he wanted was a hit of his catnip. But every night, I had to show him where it was. He forgot where it was yeah. every single night because yeah. he would get so screwed up on it. He and was, um, He was wasted. <laughs> he was wasted. And that, but I realized it was a very interesting strategy on the part of the plant because these are defense chemicals. And rather than kill him outright which would have led to the evolution of resistance to their toxin, they just confuse them so they can't find the um, plant the next day. In Cooked, which I watched a couple episodes of, your co-star in the first half is a lizard in the ground in the Western Australian outback. A big lizard. A huge, ugly, damn lizard being cooked by these people uh, who seem to enjoy it, actually. And, uh, and that opening is incredible, the fire uh, break they do. And then uh, the, a pig is the co-star of the second half. But you go to a factory farm and you, you touch on the conditions there. So you're saying to people, eat pig and eat meat if it's raised the right way, if it's raised I'm an ethical way? I'm saying if way? you're going to eat meat, you owe it to yourself and you owe it to the animals to take a look at the process. Yeah. And that if you can't own that, the fact that an animal has to die for you to eat meat 
something a lot of us don't think about. And in some senses, live the way they lived and then ultimately And then it's die. even worse. I mean, right. there are different ways that an animal can live, obviously. Right. And, and I think that makes a profound difference, at least to me in my own eating decisions. Um, so we wanted to kind of like remind people that it's a very consequential act when you eat meat. And the, the wonder of the modern food chain, the industrialized food chain, is that the process is completely hidden from us. You know, these these meat shows up, it's shrink-wrapped. It's, it's, they don't even leave bones in it anymore. It's just protoplasm. You know, it could have come from anywhere. Kids don't realize that when they eat a chicken nugget, and I know this from my own kid, he, he hadn't made the connection between a chicken nugget and chicken. Mm-hmm. I, and I think the film opens the way it does. Alex Gibney, who's the director of that episode and oversaw the whole thing, really wanted to reconnect with the fundamentals of eating meat. And uh, it's not always a pretty thing. And and I think it was a way to say right off the bat, this is not food porn. Um, you're going to see some things that are not appetizing in this film, as well as some things that are incredibly appetizing. And then over the course of that one hour, you go from perhaps some feeling of disgust. There's that young woman who eats the pork. You said she Isn't identified as a vegetarian. That is yeah. an amazing moment. Yeah. I'm thinking to myself, you must have very incredible powers for well, the vegetarian to walk in your house and go, I'll have some pig. <laughs> How the hell did that happen? Good barbecue is really temptation. It's a powerful temptation. The smell of it, the um, uh, and I was, you know, that was not a setup. We had no idea she was. We had a, we had made vegetarian sides because I knew that any group now you have in California of twenty people, you're going to have four or five vegetarians. And but she was like really curious about it. But we didn't twist her arm. There's some vegetarians online who are very upset about that scene. Uh, I've been getting some some imagine. grief that you know we forced her into it or something. But if you watch it, you can tell. And and the the play of emotions over her face is just priceless. Um, and she did. She was kind of, I mean, great barbecue is pretty incredible. She had that wonderful look, that kind of, I hate to admit it, but. Yeah. Yeah. This is really good. Now, one of the most interesting parts of the films, when you get into the second program and you talk about food service, at one point when you're talking about the evolution of food service in this country, you basically have somebody say, the guy who's selling you your gas now is selling you your food. Mm-hmm. He's flinging a pizza at you through a window or whatever, sacks and so forth. And you make this incredibly compelling statement about how, you know, we just – where's this stuff coming from? I mean, you talk about the the cost of produce going up 40 percent, the cost yeah, of soda, soda going, going down 7 percent. Yeah. And you talk about the amount of time down, it's down to 27 minutes using to, pre- to prepare food. Do you think that there's an answer for this in American society? Well, I, I do. I'm an optimist. And, you know, I would love nothing more than to see a renaissance of home cooking. I mean, you know, sometimes societies try things and they realize they don't work out. We've tried this industrial food system now for, you know, a generation basically. And we're seeing what it does to us. I mean, we have, you know, epidemic chronic diseases. Um, you know, type 2 diabetes is going to affect a third of people born in the last 10 years. A third. We're spending most of our health care money on um, uh, treating chronic diseases linked to diet. The, the, totally the, preventable. The aborigines in the first episode talk yeah. about how it, until sugar was introduced yeah. into their diet, they weren't fat people. That's right. So it's had a profound effect on us. And I sometimes think, and this is, an, this is kind of an overblown analogy, but, you know, when crack came into the ghettos, it was like a, a huge issue, big problem. A seminal change. And, but at a certain point, communities turned against it, and they realized that this is really not working for us. This is destroying our communities. I think we are having – we're not at, quite at that stage yet, but we're having a moment of recognition that the way we're eating is causing more problems than it is 
giving us solutions. And it is giving us solutions. It's, it's freeing us from the labor of cooking. If we don't want to cook, we don't have to anymore. But when you turn over your, your meal preparation to large industrial corporations, we see what they do. They create feedlots, you know, these brutal landscapes where animals now live and they're fed, you know, they're given hormones and they're given uh, antibiotics. Uh, they create these monocultures of corn and soybeans that have taken over the Midwest. Um, and, you know, agriculture now is um, the second biggest contributor to climate change. It's a third of greenhouse gases, somewhere between 25, 30 percent of greenhouse gases come from agriculture. Um, and that's particularly weird because you have to remember at the base of the food chain is a plant doing photosynthesis, okay? The ultimate in sustainable production, right? Turning sunlight into sugars, into food. So food, the food system doesn't have to be a contributor to climate change. It could be the opposite. But we've, we're essentially eating fossil fuel now. Oh, um, it's interesting you say that because a friend of mine said to me, he said, oh, well, how wonderful for you that you own acreage on Long Island where you live. Because we're all going to be growing our own, our own food, food in the next 15 or 20 years yeah. because, of, because of drought driven by global warming. Like we're, well, this I think system we can't sustain itself. Uh, yeah. No. This is, I mean when we say that the food system is unsustainable, we're not just saying we have an aesthetic objection to it. We're saying that there are problems with it that are going to lead to a breakdown. And we don't know exactly where the breakdown will come. It could be you know, shortage of fossil fuel because that's really what runs it. All the fertilizer is made from fossil fuel, the transportation, the processing. Um, we now, just to give you an idea, um, we used to generate for every calorie of fossil fuel energy we put into the food system, we got back 2.3 calories of food. Okay, that was a net gain, and that was the sun. That was solar energy. Now we put in 10 calories of fossil fuel energy to get one calorie of food. So we're losing nine calories of, of, of fossil fuel energy for every calorie we get, and that's meat production by and large. So it might break down there or it may break down because we can't afford the health care uh, effects uh, or the climate change effects. I don't know where that breakdown happens. But, yeah, it's, it's, on, a, it's on a really dangerous trajectory. And there, there, there is so much locally grown stuff uh, from Riverhead. I'm just going to talk about the area that I live in from Riverhead, uh, up island, west of – uh, the Hamptons, as people call it, I hate that phrase. But and then there's some local agriculture on the East End where I live, and yet everything there that's grown locally is forty percent higher in cost. Yeah, and yeah. for the life well, of the, I mean, the real estate sell, cost. Right? Is, yeah. that, is that what it is? Yeah. When I grew up on Long Island, we would drive out there, and there were all farms. You know, there right. were potato farms. Long sure. Island potatoes were famous. I'm from there as um, well. And uh, uh, and there was, you know, a lot Duck of food. My, my grandfather was in the produce business on Long Island, and he was buying produce from all the local farmers. But then he began buying their land and turning it into shopping centers and things like that. And so you had this translation process as – and real estate costs do drive what happens to uh, what happens to land. And some of the price is the fact that high quality local organic produce, the demand is huge. People are learning that it makes a difference how something is grown, and that that you know tasty vegetables are are an amazing thing. But and, you notice and they don't take as much work to cook. But you notice probably as I do that that the best meals I've ever had is like to go to a an Ecuadorian rice and beans place up on 89th and Amsterdam where all the taxi drivers eat. Mm -hmm. Well, that's peasant cuisine. And peasant cuisine is inexpensive, democratic, and wonderful. 
but it's being destroyed and it's being intentionally destroyed. And there's a scene in, in the second episode, the water episode, where um, they go – and I thought this was amazing uh, journalism on the part of the, the filmmaker. Carolyn Sue produced that one. Um, where they go to the Nestle factory, uh -huh. where they are trying to figure out how to sell the Indians, who uh, India Indians, who have this amazing food culture and 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 cling to it. And I mean, I know I have Indian students, and they still grind spices every day, fresh, and they bring tiffins with their lunch, and they won't eat our crap. You know, they just they're going to stick to their Indian food. Um, but they were trying to figure out how how to give the tandoori flavor to Maggie noodles, those you know pour water on noodles, yeah. and. Um, and they had all these chefs and they were trying to duplicate this flavor. And they are systematically taking apart those cuisines and turning them into flavoring. Who do you think is Maggie responsible Noodle? for that? How do governments decide or do they legislate even to make processed foods that are easy to cook and feed people a lot of calories more available? Because the quickest road to political instability is hunger in some exactly. society. And high food prices. We've right. seen that. Revolution, I mean, beginning with the French Revolution and, and the, the uh, Arab Spring was about high wheat prices. Is that what's going on in India? They just want to feed people? Uh, in India, cheaper and quicker. In India, there we, there's this there's several there's a cultural phenomenon too. I mean, which is the, the prestige of Western food, the prestige of American junk food they say all that. over the world. This it, is sexy. Yeah, to and eat out. And you and you're entering the middle class. You start eating meat like an American. You start eating KFC like an American. And this idea, which and that's marketing, right? I mean, that's really good marketing. And that 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 this stuff, which is so inferior to what they have. Uh, is the glamorous food. And that's part of it. But also the fact that cooking takes work and there are other ways to spend our time. And if you offer to do the work for somebody and you've got something you just have to pour water on and it's acceptable, some people will go along with it. I hope the Indians don't fall for the Maggie Noodle ploy. And if there's any culture that won't, it's that one. More on what Michael Pollan thinks about the future of food coming up. Explore the Here's the Thing archives where I ask Amy Schumer, is she a foodie? No. You're not. I love food, but I don't like know about it. <laughs> <laughs> Take a listen at here's the thing.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. In 2012, former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg introduced a proposal to limit the sales of sugary drinks larger than 16 ounces. The proposal, which the soft drink industry fought hard against, was finally killed by the New York State Court of Appeals two years later. My guest today, writer Michael Pollan, paid close attention to the case. Bloomberg had the right idea. It was very interesting to watch what happened to him um, and how badly he got beaten up for this. I mean, he wasn't taking away anyone's soda. He was basically saying, just have a pause between that 16-ounce <laughs> soda and the next 16 ounces. Right. Just think, do you want to do that? That's all. It's, an, it's what the social scientists called a nudge, right, which is, a, which is the least um, interfering uh, kind of social engineering you could possibly have, right? It's like... Do you opt into organ donation or opt out of organ donation? Right. Okay, these are all called nudges. And so this was merely a nudge. And it was like 
people's freedom was being taken away from them. I think there were a couple problems with what he did. I think he made one tactical mistake, which is he should have talked about children because the nanny culture, which is really the argument used, you know, you're, you're, the government shouldn't be a nanny, doesn't apply to kids. Kids can't make their own. Personal responsibility is meaningless when you're talking to right. kids. Adults have to make decisions for them, whether it's parents or other people in the community. And so had he made this about protecting children, I think he would not have gotten as much grief. That was, I think that was a mistake. But it was very interesting to see how we put up with social engineering every time we walk into the supermarket. I mean, we are being manipulated in... 10 ways till Sunday. I mean, when you walk down from the beats of the music that they play to the height of the oatmeal as opposed to the Lucky Charms to where the milk is, all that stuff. Now, um, are, are you diet conscious? Do you weigh yourself? Have you ever been heavier than you wanted to be? I've been as heavier than, than I am now. And as a result of what? Like, what did you eat? In my 20s, I worked in New York, worked for a magazine, and every day for lunch, I had a cheeseburger, french fries, and a beer. <laughs> Which seemed totally normal. Did you have it at the same place? Was it a fabulous yeah, cheeseburger? Yeah, no, it was Charlie O's or someplace in Times Square where it was just near my office. And my friend Michael Schwartz and I would go out there and, and ask what we would have. And we thought that was totally normal. And I weighed about, I don't know, 30 or 40 more pounds than I do now. Unthinkable. Um, I, you know, I was sensitized to food relatively late in life. And now I don't count calories. Uh, I seldom weigh myself. Yeah. And I eat whatever I want to eat. But... Merely by what you want to eat has changed. Yeah, what I want to eat, what gives me pleasure. I mean, my journalism has made certain things very hard to eat. I mean, I've been on those feedlots and in those hog confinement operations and, and industrially pr produced feedlot meat. It just is no appeal at all, and I will avoid it. I mean, yeah. if, I, if, if I go to your house and you serve me some feedlot steak, I'm not going to make a scene. Right. I, I haven't had beef since 1992. I haven't had pork since 1992, and I don't miss either one of them. So why did you stop eating meat in 92? Uh, well, the truth is, is that initially I did it to seduce my former wife. <laughs> she told me she was, was a, vegetarian. a vegetarian. I said, oh, my God, so am I. <laughs> I took her to a restaurant, and I said, I'll have the, the roasted squash. Oh, this is great. I'll make it to quinoa salad. But then she saw a couple In-N-Out burger wrappers stuffed under the seat of my car a few times. <laughs> And she said, you know, why are you lying to me? Why don't you? And then PETA, I, I have no appetite for it. I just, especially when you say to me, the, the, the culture of deception you're involved in. Like yeah. now the beef industry has beef blend. So every hamburger you eat in a fast food right. restaurant is they're like, okay, there's seven stocks of who's, beef. We blend them. Which one of us caused yeah. the, the, the E. coli? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. And they have the beef 200 blend. animals represented in the average uh, burger. Unbelievable. Yeah, Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. But once I realized that that's, yeah. they're, they're going to go to those lengths to hide something, yeah. I said, well, and I always tell people, I said, you like meat? So go get yourself a really nice piece of steak. Pay the yeah. money for it and get yeah. a really quality well, and, uh, you know, where I've – I went through that whole exercise, too, and learning a lot about what was going on with our meat eating. I was doing all this reporting on the industry and, and, and also philosophically went through this thought process, which I wrote about in The Omnivore's Dilemma. I, but I came out in a surprising place, which was eating meat in a very limited way because there was a kind of agriculture I wanted to support. 
basically, which was grass-fed beef production, uh, which I think environmentally can be really beneficial, and, and also the presence of animals on farms. The most sustainable farms I've seen, and I've been looking for great sustainable farms for the last 15 years, have both plants and animals working together, as you find in nature always. Um, and the, the plants feed the animals, and the animals with their waste feed the plants. And that nutrient loop is like essential to nature's um, uh, successful operations. And so there's a handful of farmers doing this really well in the country right now, and I, and I want to support their work. And these animals also get to live, um, you know, a very good life in keeping with their creaturely character. They get to have the behaviors that they want and the diet that they should have. And as the farmers say, they have one bad day. And, um, and of course, that's the day of their slaughter. And um, I'm just very comfortable supporting that. It's hard to find that meat. It's expensive. And, and if you limit yourself to that meat, you will only have meat like once a week. And that's about what I but have. But the guy on the, on the water episode who says, have the cake and the cookies and the yeah. ice cream as long as you make it all yourself. Make it all yourself. Exactly. Very, now, when, you, when I watch the show, I uh, uh, beyond uh, the crock that you have there that was your mother's crock that you cooked in that pot, um, you do get the sense you miss home a little bit. Mm. There's, a, there's a boy in you that had a one. Was, is your your, well, now your was, mother was adored by all New Yorkers, obviously, because of her column for many, many years. Yeah, and she was a great is she cook. Respons- is she responsible in part oh, for yeah. Yeah. No, she fed us really well, and she, she made a home-cooked meal, I would say, four nights a week. And uh, we got to have a TV dinner on Saturdays when they went out, right. which was a great treat. And Sunday, we'd have order in something. but um, Chinese food. Often Chinese food. And, yeah, she would make beautiful meals. She, she loved Julia Child. And, and was learning from Julia Child. So she would actually, like we would get to have Buff Bourguignon on a Tuesday night because she was trying it out, seeing if she could make it. So we were very fortunate. She's still a great cook. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's some of my love of food. Definitely comes from that. And the memories of, of the table, you know, um, being with my sisters and, and my mom. My father, oddly enough, usually wasn't at dinner because he had this long commute from Manhattan. And so he would get there and have leftovers a little bit later. Poor guy. Yeah, I know. It was a shame. He had like a two-hour commute. But um, I mean, amazing things happen at the table. And, you know, as you give up cooking, you give up eating together. And when, when you start going to the microwavable meal, everybody gets their own. And there's something about eating from the same pot that puts people on the same page psychologically, I think. And we give that up. And increasingly, we're eating alone. We're eating in the car. 20% of American food gets eaten in the car right now. Ugh. Um, we eat alone way too often. Ugh. And so we're losing – it's not just about the food. I mean, food is important, but there are the institutions that come with it. Now, your son is viewed in the film in the second episode doing his little contribution. Does he, does he still enjoy food and cooking? Yeah, well, that was he, just, he just was posing for the camera. No, 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 no. That, He's pretending that was to be taken, a pollen. No, that was taken when he was 14, actually. He's now 23. So that footage oh is God. old. And you actually see him again in the fourth episode in his right. full – He's a big, hairy guy now. It's funny. He had a a very complex history with food, which is that he really couldn't eat it for about eight years. He was one of those really picky eaters, only ate white food. Drove us absolutely crazy. He was very hard to feed. And we were actually happy if he would eat a McDonald's meal because at least he was getting some protein. Because he was one of these kids. It was noodles, rice. Um, uh, macaroni bread. and cheese. Mac- no, no, that would be mixing food. Macaroni. Oh. He was a purist. <laughs> he was a purist. Hated <laughs> sauces. Would never put butter on noodles. When we went traveling, we would bring his brand of pasta with us to like a resort. Right. And we'd say, will you make a bowl of this? Right. And, he, and they would cook up his barilla pasta, his noodles, the shape that he liked at the moment. 
And he would take one bite and he said, this tastes different. And of course, the water was different and he could taste it. And God so he, damn just, him. he just had this horrible <laughs> So he started bringing the water from home. <laughs> we didn't go that far. We were what like, does he do now? He works for an architect. He's a, he's a junior designer in an architecture firm in Brooklyn. But in, in high school, he went to work in a restaurant and he did prep cooking at a really good restaurant near us. And um, he learned to eat there. And he watched how food was made. And if kids cook, they will eat what they cook. And that was a really important insight for us. If you have a kid who's really picky, get them in the kitchen. Make them do something. Make them make what, let them make whatever they want and they will eat it. Because the mystery of like what's hiding under that sauce and, you know, they, they, the kids think you're putting something over on them whenever right. you serve them food. But if they make it, they're like, oh, it's okay. It's made of this, which is normal, and that, which is normal, and this thing, and, and maybe it's okay. And so he started eating. And now he, he loves food. He's a great eater. He's a really great cook. Um, so, Now, one other thing you touch on is the evolution of cooking in terms of feminism. Mm. The second episode talks about how you know, women are out the door doing other things. Do you feel that men and women, we can find some way where we can – Achieve something culturally where we can both share the cooking? Without a doubt. That's what we have to do. That's what I mean, we have to do. The answer is not to get women back in the kitchen. Right. Um, the That's never going to gonna happen. The, no. And, and it shouldn't happen. Right. And it's to get the whole family back in the kitchen. And uh, it, it's enormously important to get your kids cooking. I mean, it, I really think it's irresponsible parenting to to send a kid out into the world not having a clue how to roast a chicken right. or how to how to make a basic meal. Um, it's, it's a really critical life skill for their health, for their success you know, dating, for all these kind of things. It's, it's a big deal. And we're sending kids out a whole generation and they don't have a clue and they're totally dependent on the industry, which means they lose control of their diet and they lose control of the ability to make these decisions about what kind of food system they want to support. So I think it's very important to get everybody in the kitchen. And what happened with feminism and food, a story we tell in the second episode, is that the industry had been trying to insinuate itself into the American kitchen for 100 years with processed food. Women who were doing most of the cooking were rejecting it. They just didn't feel good about having these companies cook for them. They, they couldn't take credit for what they made. The quality wasn't very good. Then you have this, this tension that erupts when women go back to work. And in households across America, you have this argument about housework because it's not fair that women work and also do childcare and also clean and also cook. And so there was this very tense renegotiation going on. And before we could complete it, the industry steps forward and say, hey, stop arguing. We got you covered. We'll do it all. And KFC has this uh, billboard campaign across America with uh, an image of their big red and white bucket of chicken and two words above, women's liberation. Yeah. And they aligned. It was, it was sort of like Virginia there's that, Slims. There's that, there's that ad where the quote says, mother can find out what is happening in the outside world. Yeah. Liberating. My God, what a time capsule mm. shot that is. But, you know, the idea that liberation would disguise dependence, in fact, on these corporations uh, was lost on everybody. And so, so the important point, though, is that, that these companies let men off the hook as much as they let women off the hook because men didn't want to do any more work. And so when you had companies coming saying, don't argue, we'll do it, everybody jumped. Well, what's wrong with uh, how do you fight? They're going to win because they're. Uh... Well, yes and no. I mean, we all have power. I mean, one of the great things about this issue is we get three votes a day, you know, and people are voting in a different way for a right. different kind of food right. system. I mean, eating is a political act. Right. And um, 
those of us who can afford to buy the sustainable chicken and beef or, or whatever, you know, not everyone has the same vote. And that's unfortunate. And that's why voting with your fork is not – we also need to vote with our votes. And we need new policies without question. Um, and What's a I policy think, change you'd like to see? Well, the big policy change – I mean, right now, as, as the film suggests, we're, we're subsidizing the least healthy calories. We subsidize the sweeteners and the soda. We subsidize the, the building blocks of junk food, which is corn and soy. That's what the government subsidizes. We do nothing for the people growing produce. Same with energy. We subsidize oil and we don't subsidize – Exactly. So we have, to, we have to align our agricultural policies with our health and environmental objectives. Right now, they're working at cross purposes. We are subsidizing the creation of sweeteners like high fructose corn syrup. At the same time, the government is also paying for dialysis for, for type 2 diabetes. That's crazy. That's, it's supporting both sides in the war on type 2 diabetes. Um, obviously, you have members of your family, your, your sister's husband, the well-known actor, mm-hmm. people who suffered from diseases and have been sick with diseases. Do you wonder ever if there's a link between diet and some of these diseases that are non-diabetic related diseases? I think there's a link between a lot of diseases and diet. I, I don't know about Parkinson's. I've never right. seen any research about that. Right. Um, I think we will find that Alzheimer's is connected, right. uh, that it is a disease of inflammation. Basically, there's a kind of a grand unified theory of a great many diseases that's coming to the fore, and it's built around the idea of inflammation, right. that we have bodies that are now inflamed. It's why we have so many more allergies, so many more autoimmune conditions. And it may turn out that Alzheimer's is another one of those inflammatory diseases. And what inflames us is uh, a shitty diet, is a, is a junk food diet. And we know that. And we can, we can see you can feed people um, a, a junk food meal with lots of fat and sugar and salt. And you can check their markers for inflammation within hours and you see them spike. And many of us live in a permanently inflamed condition because of the way we're eating. Uh, so it's no wonder we're getting these diseases. But um, Parkinson's, you know, I, I don't think we know. Um, I, I'm, I'm a believer in the, some uni, unifying theory as well, which what is it that's causing yeah. Parkinson's and, and, and autism clusters in a this country? A whole lot of things that we didn't deal with in these numbers before. And, you know, we are also exposed to lots of toxins. And there are some people who think that Parkinson's is related to pesticides. Some people I know, they posit that, you know, they go over to Europe and they eat the bread and they eat the pasta. They don't have the same problem. They don't have the bloating. They don't have – and they come back. Are they, are they imagining that? Yeah. They're, I, I'm pretty sure they're imagining it for two reasons. One, there's no GMO wheat on the market anywhere in the world. <laughs> it hasn't been approved. I mean, it's been approved, but Monsanto's declined to sell it because the wheat farmers don't want it so far. Two, most of the wheat that you eat in Europe is grown in like North Dakota and Saskatchewan. They don't grow enough wheat. So – I mean, it may be that in Europe you're getting bread that's properly fermented. We talk about this in the third episode, is that we've sped up the making of bread in such a way that the gluten doesn't get broken down. So instead of having these long sourdough fermentations, we, I went to, I, I went to a um, uh, Wonder Bread plant, and they can, with 37 different chemicals, get a loaf of bread to, to do everything within four hours, you know, rise, bake, package, the whole thing. Yeah. And But they're not properly fermenting it. So therefore, the gluten's not breaking down. And it may be that change that is giving a lot, people a lot of trouble with gluten. Um, it's gluten plus something else. Yeah. It, I think it is something else. And, um, and But they're different. I mean, people, they're different. I mean, there are real people with celiac disease who are allergic to gluten in any form and shouldn't eat it. But then there's this mass of people who are convinced that if they just got off gluten, you know, they would sleep better. Their sex would be better. Their, their lives would be fine. And there's a very powerful marketing machine encouraging us to feel this way. Um, I, I, I just think that 
the 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 number of gluten intolerant people um, is growing so much faster than any biological change in the human species can account for. Mm -hmm. So there are some real there are people struggling with it, and it may be because they're inflamed. It may be because their microbiomes are all screwed oh, yeah. up. Yeah. Um, People will point the finger at that for, for quickest about and we're, But we're always looking for dietary salvation in this country. We're always pointing to the evil nutrient and the blessed nutrient. And it used to be saturated fat was the evil nutrient. Now it's gluten and sugar. And there'll be another one next year. So yes or no question. Is the the book cooked, and especially the show cooked, which has got a very warm tone to it? This mm -hmm. is a very warm and very well. It's photographed. a celebration, really. Well, it's a very warm, warm program. Do you think, in some part, that this was something you did to answer some charges of elitism against some of the work you've done? Some people have found your work rather elitist. Uh, mm, uh, you know, I think that we were trying to. We didn't want to put a lot of chefs in this. We didn't want this to be a foodie thing. I, mean, I hate the whole, I hate the word foodie and everything that attaches to it. And and that cooking is this universe. Human universal. People do it all over the world at every different socioeconomic scale. But do, you think so, you bring, but do you think you bring that to the fore more so in this project than in anything else you've done? Maybe. Maybe we have. Um, I mean, it is, you know, cooking is a very democratic activity. It's mm -hmm. still available to all of us. Um, we still have kitchens. They still sell houses with kitchens and rent houses with kitchens. And we have pots and pans and knives. And they still, saw, they still sell raw ingredients down at the supermarket along with the rotisserie chickens and everything else. Um, and so it is – I don't buy that it's elitist. And um, uh, the charge is sometimes made and um, any kind of concern and interest in food is, is, uh, is you know, is elitist. And it's, it's very interesting that companies We're like – well, yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting that companies like McDonald's get to occupy the populist high ground. Right. Multinational companies – are offering the democratic food. I don't buy that. So my last question for you is, what right do you have to write a book uh, about psychedelic drugs? Well, what, what possible? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't have a lot of experience with them, actually. Okay. So um, what's, what's, the, what's the curiosity for you? The curiosity for me is there's a revival of research around psychedelics, and we are learning amazing things about the brain by studying what happens to people on psilocybin, especially and LSD to some extent. These drugs are also proving to be, as they were in the 50s, before this, you know, most of us, our history of psychedelics begins with Timothy Leary. In a way, that's the end of the first phase, which was some really serious research in the 50s. And, uh, Huxley. Yeah, Huxley and uh, a group of psychiatrists who were having very good luck um, administering it to their patients, using it to cure alcohol addiction, using it to help people die. And so I started learning about this research, which is underway now, and uh, wrote a long piece for The New Yorker about it called The Trip Treatment last year and, um, and realized there was a whole world I didn't know that much about. And here I was, you know, nearing 60 and um, thinking about mortality. And, and here was this drug that was I, I saw helping people die. And I thought that was fascinating. And why was that? Why would, why would this mystical experience change your complete outlook about mortality? And I saw that in many people that it did. And I saw them die a different kind of death. So that, that kind of got me interested. And since then, I've been puzzling over questions of, like, why should a mushroom make a chemical that gives humans mystical experiences? That's kind of trippy. Cooked, which is on Netflix now. Yeah. What, what's interesting to me is you've given me a great gift, truly, because I've got little kids. And I want to teach them about food by cooking food with them. Mm. I don't want to sit there and say to them, don't eat that and don't eat that. Mm. And you're not going to have it. You can't have that. I want to sit down. I want to say to them, well, what do you want? We're going to make it. Whatever you want to eat right now, you can Here's have. Here's how you make pizza. Here's you how like we're, pizza? Gonna, we're gonna make let's, it. Let's and do I, it. I, I can't wait. You know, some of the sweetest moments uh, of my time with my son when he was still at home was cooking together. 
uh, and you see a little of that in that in that second episode. Um, but it was there's something about, especially with a teenager. Teenagers are very hard to talk to eye to eye. All right, it gets very difficult. Um, I have a twenty year old. Sorry. Okay, so now. you know. Yeah. But side by side, that's why you have all your difficult conversations with your kid in the car usually, right? Because you're both looking ahead. <laughs> exactly. But but chopping onions, um, you know, working you know side by side, doing a project together, that's the best time to talk to your kid, and that's when they just open themselves up. I thank Michael Pollan for opening up to me. Our time was up. Before I got to ask him what his favorite packaged food is, I found out later. Cracker Jacks. You can see Michael Pollan's four-part series, Cooked, on Netflix. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing from WNYC Studios.